What would it be like to own your own land, to be self-sufficient, to empower yourself in real estate? What's up, everybody? This is Marco Solis, and this is One Mic Night, the podcast. The podcast that brings you stories and personal journeys of people in life and entertainment, helping to guide, answer questions, motivate, and empower you in life. Today, we're speaking to a man who is the owner of Black Land Ownership. His name is Christopher Carr. We're going to get into some discussion about just that. So please welcome him to the show. How you doing? Yeah, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, uh, thanks for the discussion. Thanks for taking time to come out. Appreciate it. So I have questions. First of all, who who is Chris Carr? Who is Christopher Carr? You need to know that. I mean, first, uh, first, I'd like to say shout out to you for hosting me. Uh, shout out to the folks watching this. Um, and you just hit the nugget of like my whole artistic endeavor is that existential crisis. I exist. Who am I? Where am I? What am I here to do? Who am I here to do it with? I kind of view myself as a, and I know it's going to sound whatever, but intergalactic light and energy in the form of a human vessel. And I present as a black man. That's important to me. It's important to my art. I grew up in a black community in DC. My mom worked at Howard University. Education and working to educate others in the community and learn from others in the community is very important to me. Um, I've been making art professionally and like working as a full-time musician or artist for over 10 years. I went to school at Columbia University. I went to grad school there for medieval studies. So technically I'm a medievalist. Mm, okay. uh, and I'm interested in the ideological construction of orthodoxy and heresy, looking at the Franciscan order, but really looking at power, dominance. Um, does, do economics influence morality? All these other issues. How do we define who's deviant, who's normal? Uh, which then spills into my artwork. Like as, a, as in a black community, we're vilified, we're stigmatized. Right, but yeah. Who established that normal? Who established right. what's the essence of beauty? Who established who's the, the hegemonic like power source? Right. And so that stuff influences my art and led into my interest in black land ownership. Uh, and so I'm, I'm a son of a, a single mother. Uh, I was raised in a, a relatively matriarchal family. Like my mm -hmm. grandmother definitely was not soft. My mom's definitely not soft. My aunt is not soft. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, and I'm, I'm out here, I live in Brooklyn, you know? So I wanna go back to what you just said, you know, who the things that influenced your art, the society, we know who made the standard of beauty, but is that what you're trying to change? Is that what you're, you know, we know this society was, was founded, you know, the Americas was founded by Europeans. Mm -hmm. They created the standard of beauty. But it sounds like what you're saying is that you're trying to change that narrative by showing people that it's not the Europeans. It's us who can shape yeah. the beauty. So on, on two levels, like one, one line is how does an oppressed group mm -hmm. a, recognize the power they've always had right. and not only see the negative in the experience and any marginalized group then uh, becomes an influence for me or any group of people that had to struggle against an oppressor, then I feel connected to. But then as people of African descent, the Europeans learn from us. So on, on that route, I'm not a believer that the Europeans control the world. I'm mm -hmm. looking at them partially destroy the world, trying to control it, and they can't. They can't stop us. They can't hold us down. Ooh. And 
so much of what's happening is an attempt to do that. So whether it's beauty, whether it's economics, whether it's social engagement, whatever it happens to be, I'm, I'm like, yo, decolonize your mind, decolonize your experience. That may, learn, that may mean learning history. That may mean working with other people who are into history and research if you're not into it. But it, it says question. When a psychologist says, you're an angry black man, why do you believe in a psychologist? They did Freud and, and uh, Maslow right, and Carl right. Jung understand all of us? Mm-hmm. I don't believe so. You know, do you feel like the current situation right now in, or actually in 2020, summer of 2020, all the events that happened, you know, with the Ferguson and Black Lives Matter movement, do you think that's created a new consciousness and a search for history and a search for, you know, empowerment, entrepreneurship, like all these things have spun out of it, I feel like. Do you feel like that? I hope so. I hope uh, it's not just a reactionary kind of like ripple effect of like, something negative happened. So people say we need to stop that from happening, but actually looking into like ongoing, we have a new uh, president, we have Mm -hmm. a new cabinet that's coming in, new political orientation, but will they continue to challenge? Will will they push or is it lip service? Mm. Yeah, it seems like there's this idea of invest in black businesses. But when I my friend works in finance and so i guess either morgan stanley or or one of these uh merrill lynch one of these companies was doing a program for like black investment and property ownership but they their idea was well we'll offer more loans in areas where we didn't offering loans gets them money back on interest that actually isn't something beneficial to us that's just saying oh we were missing out on making money because we were being racist uh well Tone down the racism a little bit, not hire more black people in VP positions or in high level executive suites, but let you all go into debt like the rest of the people in this country. Right. Sure. You well, know, do you feel like, I mean, back to the administration, do you feel like I first, I feel like, and I want to ask you, you feel like this, but I feel like that the president is coming into the office already making changes. And like you said, you hope that it runs for the longevity. Do you feel like that, that there's some glimmer of hope with that happening? He's appointed more women. He's appointed more people of color. The first Native American, you know what I mean? Like these things are happening. Yes, uh, I'm delusionally hopeful. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. You know, as an artist, I have chosen a way of living that everyone said you can't do. Right. And we're doing it. Right. You know, so I hope that the new administration continues that. And I hope the people put in place are not just figureheads or not just a, a uh, presentation that's performative of, well, we hired this person, but they think like all the other people that didn't look like them. Because I, I do diversity and inclusion workshops. Mm-hmm. And so it's not just diversity and presentation, but diversity of thought. So you can hire a black person that hates black people. And, uh, and you can, it looks like, oh, well, you hired a black person to be your CEO. Right. They just as racist, if not more than, you know, so it's 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 the combination of, of motive or uh, purpose. And I'd, I'd like to believe some of the people that have been appointed are definitely progressive, are definitely willing to challenge, are definitely have experience and, and have a history of making change. And and so I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful, but I am cautious of any political entity. I, I, you know, part of my orientation is, you know, the state is inherently violent. The state is inherently exploitative. And so can the U.S. government ever really try to help us? Now, the people in it can. And so I'm hoping those people do their work, you know. Right. 
which is why we say too, it's not necessarily the president that you need to worry about voting for. It's all these people under the president, the councilmen, the assemblymen, all these people who are right there with the people, giving the voice, saying, this is what my people, the people of my contingency want. This is what they want. So it's not necessarily just the president. You're right. It's all the people around him. And, and you, it, the, the next part of it is hopefully communities continue to push. When, when communities lost faith in the political, they had to gain faith in themselves and they had to self-motivate. And so I hope communities continue to be self-driven and use the politicians as, like you said, tools of representation and not just rely on the politicians dictating what we should be doing. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I want to talk about what you have going on, Black land ownership. Tell us a little bit about it. What's 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 the purpose? What's the mission of Black land ownership? It, it ties right into what we we're just talking about. Is like the in the Black community, is there a unified mission? And in the 50s, 60s, that mission of like for some people in segregation. Even then, it wasn't unified. There were Black people who were like, "Don't end segregation. Like we good," you know. But for uh, a platform, you could really galvanize and bring people together and saying, we want human rights. We want to be treated as equal and separate and equal is not working. Right. And so you can bring people together. So I started thinking 2019, 2018, I guess it was, 2017, 2018, what can unify? Because if we talk about abortion, I know young black people in New York who are saying it's women's rights. Anyone trying to challenge that hates women. And then I have other friends who live down south and old, you know, grandmas that are like, we don't believe in abortion. Right. And I don't yes. need to be fighting with grandma or my homegirl, right. you know? Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, when we think about schools, do we give up on the public school system, start our own black schools and not rely on the government? Or do we say, hey, we pay taxes. The public schools should do what they're supposed to do and serve our community. Again, you got different members of the black community arguing about that. And I made a list of over 20 issues affecting the black community what could we unify them? And the only one that I could come across where there really isn't that much of an argument was Black land ownership. Mm. Who can beef with that? Who really has a problem? Right. And it hasn't already been delineated as Republican or Democrat. It hasn't already been associated with urban or rural. It's unfortunately like untouched. Like people talk about affordable housing. People talk about access to clean water or food or agricultural programs for people of color, but just black land ownership, period. You know? Right. I think it has to do a little bit uh, back to what you were saying, but financial problems, you know what I mean? Like, where do you get the finances? What do you, you know, who are these lending institutions that are giving you the money and what interest rate are they giving you versus what they're giving somebody else? You know what I mean? Is it based on color? Is it based on what, what's it based on? So how do we how do we get black land ownership? That's that's what we're asking. And that's when the question it it the largest Pandora's box slash rabbit hole I've gone into probably in the past 10 years. And and I like big issues. I like trying to understand big issues and the complexity of it and the overlap. So one of the first things was to do the historical research. So we started trying to make a timeline of land ownership in America from 1830 or 40 up till now. And looking at the Homesteading Act in the 1850s, well, Black people were still under slavery in certain parts of the country, so they couldn't take advantage of the Homesteading Act. And uh, certain government officials purposely said, this isn't available to Black people. You're not eligible. So there are white folks now in, in literally 2020 that have land because of that Homesteading Act 150 years ago. 
Um, and, and explain it to let people know what the homesteading act was. <laughs> well, in in this, in the, uh, <laughs> is when the Europeans formed their government as the U.S. and stole land from the indigenous. Basically, after a certain point, they had all this land that they'd stolen from the indigenous and they wanted to give it to people in order to encourage them to occupy it or else it would be taken back by the indigenous. And so they said, basically, if you can get to it and you can uh, farm it or turn it into a homestead within a certain amount of time, we'll give you the land for free. And it encouraged Western expansion into the form of uh, what would now be like Oklahoma, because the, the the Western frontier at that time was kind of Louisiana and Mississippi River up, you know? Right. And so they're trying to expand past that. It ties into the uh, Mexican-American War, the uh, annexation of Texas, and, and a bunch of other stuff. But there was all this land that was basically government owned. And they said, we'll give it to you if you can go make it usable. And we weren't allowed to do that. If we look at then uh, post-slavery, when we are free black folks, what happened in Georgia, Florida, uh, Alabama, Mississippi, we got run off of the land. We were supposed to be able to own it and trying to get deeds and property titles and things transferred, problems. Uh, chased out by the Ku Klux Klan, chased out by lynch mobs, government making active uh, measures so that you don't wanna be in that town. There, there wasn't a law saying we don't let black people live here, mm -hmm. but they made it so you know we don't want y'all to live here. Um, and then that goes through to when you have uh, the a lot of the social programs in the early 1900s, they're still redlining. So when, when the U.S. government says, hey, bankers, we will finance your mortgages. So even if they default, the U.S. government will pay you the money. Give out more home loans. We want to encourage home ownership. Well, redlining. And they started saying, but don't give the money to black right. people. Either. Exactly. Yeah. You know, yeah. so so that's one avenue. It's like learning the history of all those things that have happened uh, so that people can't argue and say that, yo, Chris, you, you're focusing on race when really it's about economics. It's it's overlap, but race is a starting point. And the second is they're black people with money. And uh, my my partner lives up in Westchester and we we're up there. And I was talking to a family friend and I was like, why aren't there more black people in this neighborhood? And the answer was, well, you need to have money to move out here. And I was like, they're black people with money. How can they know black people out here? Oh, well, da, da, da. And they wouldn't accept that the banks don't give out loans the same way. They wouldn't accept that people who are selling houses would change the price when the black person walks in the door. Right. And, uh, the mortgage companies behave certain ways. And so we started researching that. And, and so it's such a complicated issue. It's funny uh, you say that because I just saw the other day, um, someone was on one of the talk shows and she was saying it's an interracial couple black woman, white man, the house was up for sale. She decided to do an experiment and have, you know, the realtor come in and appraise the house. She had pictures of, you know, her black family, black side of her family up in the house. And the real estate person came in and he appraised it of one thing. They called another realtor, took down the black photos, had the white side of the family up in there. They appraised it much higher. Yep. That, that trend has been, uh, I think it's starting to get more awareness because of shows like that and people talking about it like you are, mm -hmm. uh, which is good. There's a book by Andre Perry who works for the Brookings Institute called Know Your Worth. I believe that's the name of it. And he is he talks about that and how black property is underassessed, undervalued. And then once it transfers ownership, it then is evaluated properly. And that next person who tends not to be black gets the benefit. Absolutely. Different. I've heard about that all my life be honest yeah yeah you're right yeah 
And, and so like some of these issues, they're around us, you know, like it's, it's we see it, we hear it, you talk to the homie or you hear things from your parents, your grandparents. But when we started amassing it and putting it together, it was like, wait, only 2% of rural land is owned by black people? There were more black farmers and landowners in 1890 than now? And that shouldn't be possible based on population numbers. Like the U.S. population in 1890 was nowhere near 350 million. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, uh, and and so then we have to study differences in farming in general and land ownership in general. And sure, there are maybe 40 percent uh, change in white land ownership, but it's 85 percent change in black land ownership in rural areas. And so, why such a huge discrepancy? Why is it so many more black people are being dispossessed of their land down in the Gullah Islands, um, formerly like black black beach communities, Louisiana, Alabama, Mississippi? You're seeing black folks lose their land, and white folks are the ones getting it. Picking it up, yeah. That's staggering. That's a staggering number. It's staggering. So what do we do? Where are we? I mean, what? How do we? How do we get on board? Because first of all, you know, you're talking about we're talking about empowerment. You know, the, the, the biggest asset you can have, first of all, is probably diamonds, fine jewelry. The second one is real estate. You know, all these people doing stocks and bond, those are very volatile. That's way down the list. But real estate is on the top two, you know, of assets you should have, especially if it's a place that's sustainable, like a yeah. farm where you can self-sustain. How do we get on board with it? What do, What is your organization doing? Try to provide the information and the resources. So first, and figuring out what's available to you. What resources do you already have? So let's say you're a person like me, I make art. I have never saved $100,000. Like I don't, in my bank account, there's not $100,000. Right. So yeah. buying a million dollar property in Brooklyn, out of the question. Let's say, cause you need 10%. You start seeing these things on TV where they're like, you can get a house with 3% down and only $8,000. Your credit better be pristine. You better know the homie who knows the homie at the right, bank. Right. Most of it doesn't work like that. So our first thing is getting to the actual, like what resources do you have? What can we do? And one of the reasons we're focusing on rural land initially is the barrier to entry is so much lower. Now, even though it's more difficult to get an agricultural loan, if you want to just get raw land, you'll probably have to come up with most of the cash yourself. You may be able to get a loan, but you'll have to come to the table with probably 30 or 40%. But you can get raw land for $20,000, $30,000. Me and five friends, I should, over a year or two, mm -hmm. be able to save $5,000. Right. If I think about the drinking, the going on vacation, the clothes, the shoes, the way we spend our money. You just said it. That's it. You can pay 5G. Absolutely. And me and five friends can go buy property. Yep. Now we have an asset that can be used as collateral to then get a, another loan on property in a city somewhere. And, and you work it, in, in my mind, little small steps. And it's what, what gets you to that next point. Um, and for some people, it may be buying land to do conservation. You can get government tax rebates because you're conserving land or wetlands or trying to preserve nature. You can buy land and start so see, a farm. These are the things we don't know about or, or don't even think about, you know what I mean? Like maybe this is somebody's hearing this for the first time, you know what I mean? Yeah, get three or four of your friends together, you know, buy some land, you know, uh, cons be a conservatory, you know what I mean? And, and, and make that money, put the money back in so you can get another property. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because real estate goes up. Yeah, it, they're not making any new land. And and what hit me, I was in Colorado 
And I've been through Texas, Colorado, California, a bunch of other places and seeing black erasure, like people getting pushed out, whether it's in Austin, Brooklyn, Oakland, San Francisco, black people going to, but then in, when I went to Colorado, I'm like, whoa, there are no black people here in the first place. But look at all this land. Right. Are these towns dying? And the person who I knew had a little small farm, a four acre farm, she was like, yeah, the towns are like losing population as people move to the big cities. And I was like, oh, so the, the value of the land must go down. Like as people leave and these cities are dying, I mean, these towns are dying, then the property must be cheap. It's like, no, the value is going up. Why? Corporations are going out there and buying huge tracts of it. Yeah. and getting because they know the cities will expand it may take 50 years it may take right. eight years but denver is going to expand right. fort collins will expand grand junction will expand it's always cyclical it's always cyclical you know what i mean like the poor get it or in the city and then they get pushed out and then the rich come in they buy it up rebuild it and then it goes back it's a cycle it's a and cycle so you notice there are fewer folks that own farms in rural areas now, but the size of those farms are much larger than they used to be. Much, much. It's, it's, it's agribusiness, right? Mm -hmm. And and so as black people, we need to get into the rural market now, or we're going to get priced out of that. Absolutely. And we can use the rural property to leverage as either asset or as a, a way to get equity or as a way to have some type, like if I, if I go to a bank now and they're like, what's your collateral? I can't put my apartment up. I can't <laughs> put up my machine. I can't put up, you know, like you need some type of hard asset. And like you said, sure, you can end up being that person that buys land in the desert that would never appreciate. Don't buy that. Right. But the majority of land you can purchase will appreciate. Will appreciate. Yep. So where do we start? That's the problem. You know what I mean? I think you said it, you know, you save your money. You don't, maybe you don't go out this week. Maybe you don't go to McDonald's this week. Maybe you don't, you know, you put that away and you finally get $3,000. Then you begin. Yeah. And you, and you think about where you would like to have an experience, right? Like I live in New York city. We were looking at Vermont and it was like, well, that's a four or five, five, six hour drive. Maybe their place is closer. And we started speaking to people we knew who were upstate New York. I talked to a homegirl who moved to Phoenicia or Phine whatever, I, I don't know the name of the town in Greene County. I talked to my homie that moved out to uh, uh, Orange County. And then you start looking at places. You start learning that the stuff on the internet's one level, but once you get into an area, you'll find somebody who's like, oh wait, my uncle is trying to offload this property. And again, it depends on what you want to use it for. If it's just an investment property and you are buying it, hoping to sell it or flip it in a year or two, mm -hmm. that's one avenue. If you want to go start your farm and get out the city, that's another avenue. If you want to provide a space for other people, like one thing in Colorado I learned, you can buy property. If you let your neighbor's cattle graze on your property, you get a tax break. You don't have to use your land. You let other people in the community use it. Oh, you wow. lease it out to other people that are already farming and need more open space. If you can grow certain types of grass on your property that they can't, that are better for the cows and the horses, people pay you for it. Right, right. I think the problem that we have though, is that we live right now in the here and now, the instant gratification society. People are not thinking about long-term. People are not thinking about the future. People are thinking about just right now. So what do you say to those people who are, you know, like a single mother who has two kids, she's trying to feed her kids, she's trying to go to work, she's trying to, you know, all this stuff. How do you begin? Where do you go? How can, how can you help? How can we help? What's the idea? Now, I, I am also a firm believer that not everything is for everybody. 
And so I don't want to put pressure on people like they have to do something. But I would say to a single mother or to anyone with children, some of these kids that aren't Black are graduating from college without loans because their family sold some rural property the senior year in high school and used that money to pay for college. So if you have a three-year-old now, buy some land, sit on it for the next 15 years, and when your kid needs to go to college, sell it and use that money to pay for the college so your kid doesn't come out in debt or you don't have to take on the debt of your child. And a person may say, well, that's really difficult. I agree, it is, it is. But we're also engaged in the process. I have nothing, like in the sense of property, assets, money. My partner is an educator and yes, has a good job, has saved some money, but she's not from a trust. She's not from a, a family where they just given us, oh, here's a hundred thousand. That is not happening. Right, you know? right, yeah. And so we're in it with you. We're right. I'm sitting here, I've been the past year and a half, two years, like, okay, let's save this money. And I don't I don't make enough to save a lot. I've always been a how much is rent? I make this amount above rent. Right. You know. And isn't that the mentality though? You know what I mean? Like we and it's it's not I don't want to say it's a white black thing, it's it's sort of a uh economic thing, you know, uh most white people, you know, upper class people, they sit down with their kids and they teach them about real estate. They teach them about stocks. They already have, you know, maybe a little trust fund or something coming out the gate. We as people of color don't necessarily have that. Now we're in a different age where we have, you know, people who are second generations of people who are stars and money and hip hop artists and things like that. But how do we, how do we begin? You know, we have to allocate our funds in a way where we're planning for the future. It's a mentality that we have to have, you know, to create this thing, to buy land, to to be empowered for ourselves. I think you you've hit the nail on the head in the sense of the socialization part of it and the norma, norma, making normative mm -hmm. to normalize uh, financial literacy. And I know there are a lot of programs now for financial literacy. A lot of them do focus in stock market and some volatile elements. A lot of them are giving you equations of how much to save versus how much to spend if you make a certain amount of money. I think all that's a start. Um, there's a reality though of most people in America are not rich, right? 1% owns 99% of everything. Right. Yeah. So it may look like white people got it figured out, but let's let's go through rural Texas and right. you stop being like, whoa, this is wilder than the hood where I'm from. Right. And yeah. it's all white people in trailers on crystal meth, you know? But when you look at that 1%, they are about 98% white. And so you're right. They they grow up in a household talking about land trust, talking about um, inheritances, talking about uh, real estate investment trusts, yes. talking yes. about collective ownership as businesses. And so when you don't have a lot as an individual in terms of assets, you work collectively. It's, it's all the stuff from Kwanzaa, you know, and, and there's a reason that got brought into Kwanzaa because we were doing it 500 years ago, a thousand years ago. Right, yeah. You know, it's collective work, but that American and colonial individual mentality won't work for you when you're in our situation. You know, it just hit me, that's funny. You're, you're absolutely right. It's collective work and it's collective. And I don't be like a susu or a pyramid, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> but it's joining forces with other like-minded people in order to, you know, acquire some sort of empowerment and wealth and land and so forth. But yeah, you're right, you're absolutely right. And we need more, you know, financial institutions that are owned by people of color. Yeah. We need, you know, uh, these people who are helping us gain 
uh, wealth and empowerment. So you're right. It is. It's collective. It is definitely and, collective. And allies in the sense of I've been lucky that people who know things put me on. And so uh, there's this cat, Anthony Marshall, who helped start Lyricist Lounge, which is one of my most influential, like, kind of hip hop entities. And we've been in touch because, like, he he DJs sometime and, like, he's into music stuff. But he also worked at Current TV. He's been running entertainment-oriented businesses for decades. And he put up a note being like, yo, I'm offering services at a lower rate. And I'm sitting there like, bro, I don't have a lot of money. But if I'm gonna hire somebody to give me advice, let me hire another person of color, another black person. Cause later we, we can get into the people of color and black. Right. I'm gonna yeah. say, I, I wanted to hire a black person. And the first thing we were talking about, he was like, yo, I know you work in community. I know you wanna do not for profit. I know you're interested in this and that, but with all the work and effort you're gonna have to put in, you should be able to make some money off of this. So look into real estate investment trust. And I was like, what, what's a real estate investment trust? I never heard of that. And it's a way where you have a hundred different people who own and go in and buy property. When you see hotels, most of the time, those hotels don't own the building. A real estate investment trust does. And then they lease it on a 60 year lease to a hotel or even hospitals. Most of these huge strip malls are purchased by real estate investment trusts. And it's over a hundred people involved in it. And non-black people have been hearing about this forever. When I spoke to a lawyer and I was like, yo, me and my friends want to buy property together. Lawyers like never buy property with other people. Then when I say, well, what's this real estate investment trust? They're like, oh, you actually know. <laughs> well, yeah, you could do that, right. you know? Right, yeah, yeah. And that's how the other people amass wealth. Exactly, see? That might be the tip of the day right there, what you just said. See that? Hmm, yeah. that's food for thought. Yeah, so I, so I think it's, it's that. It's the, those little things of, they're jewels everywhere. Right. And, and so being able to reach out to my homie, I spent, you know, 50 or $100 to have a consultation, which opened my conversation up. And even if I can't organize a real estate investment trust now, it's taken me then to meet these people, talk to these people. Right. When I have discussions, they're like, oh, you actually, okay, we're not going to give you the we normally give you the okie doke talk. Right, right. Gotta, oh, all right, let, let's build, you know? Uh, but, it, but it's not made to be easy. I will tell anyone out there, home ownership, land ownership is full of administrative bureaucratic BS. The lawyers make sure they get paid. The agents make sure they get paid. The banks make sure they get paid. There are so many hoops to jump through, but it's manageable. Right. It is manageable. And there are people that do it all day, every day. We can't be afraid to take on the big challenges. And there you have it. So let us know where we can find you on social media and all that stuff. Where can we find you? Uh, for this conversation, blacklandownership.com. Uh, we have an Instagram, which is blacklandownership. Mm -hmm. We have a Twitter. And I answer all the correspondence. I'm there. You send me an email through the website. I contact you. All this kind of developed out of the years I've been doing Brooklyn Wildlife, which was our uh, arts and entertainment uh, platform. So if you're interested in music, visual art, curatorial activities, we have an art space here in Greenpoint. You can look up Brooklyn Wildlife and you'll find me. I answer all this stuff there, BK Wildlife. We've been doing a summer festival for the past 10 years, all independent, no sponsors. And uh, the last year where we could hold it because of you know COVID, um, we had over 150 live performers. It was over 10 days of activities. Wow. And all types of music and art. Like I, I, I represent and I feel tied to the black community, but I work with 
folk musicians who aren't black. I work with international artists from Sweden and Germany, Australia. We work with, uh, you know, folks from Kenya, South Africa, Ghana, Senegal, uh, Cuba, Brazil, Venezuela. You know, we, we, if you're into art and music and culture and DIY and progressive idea and thoughts, hit us up. We, we try to make sure in my understanding of supporting humanity in the black family, we have to make sure we support the queer, trans, non-binary community and, and create spaces where it's not just accepting, but welcoming and making sure there's representation of the full black family, international family and like people in general, you know? Um, and so I, I'm accessible. I'm the type of person where if there wasn't a pandemic, I'm like, yo, holler at me, give me a dap. Right, hug. Right. You know, come speak to me. I like talking to people, <laughs> you know. So so how has this time helped you in terms of, you know, being an entrepreneur or, you know, helping yourself to continue on as an artist? Because, you know, everybody's been crippled by all the artists have been crippled by not working. What are you doing to keep, you know, to keep this going? I am in certain ways lucky and in other ways didn't realize I had created a plan B for myself. Um, I never had a plan B, like if art doesn't work, I don't have another option. I'm doing art, I'm making music, I write every day, I'm recording, I'm editing, we're planning shows. But during that process, I'd also been working in schools and I had done diversity and inclusion training back in like the early 2000s, uh, my mom's an attorney. And so she was doing sexual harassment stuff before it was cool and trending. Mm. And so we were doing sexual harassment training at Howard University back when dudes are looking at you like, I'm not allowed to hit on it. And it's like, you aren't, you know? <laughs> and and so I'd, I'd had one foot in that realm for a while. And so maybe three years ago, I was doing some professional developments with the Department of Education mm -hmm. in doing uh, diversity training and instituting a interdisciplinary learning uh, environment and curriculum. Mm -hmm. So that then led me into some tech opportunities because uh, I, I worked for a startup that was doing events. And so I was doing their diversity and inclusion, which then led to some other jobs because once George Floyd got murdered, Breonna Taylor got murdered, their protests, riots, certain companies who tried to ignore the issues were mm -hmm. having, and they were having to face it. Their black right. employees were like, what are y'all doing about this? Right. What are y'all saying about it? And they didn't know what to say. Right. So they, None they, of that standing on the line. You got to make a choice one way. And they didn't know how to do it. Right. And so I got hired to help guide some companies through that. Um, and so that pushed me to be more of like, okay, let's let's get that situated. Like, let me be more of a business person in that realm. And then we started getting up merch. Like with, with the art space we have, we weren't really making money off the space. It was just to be creative and to have a space for other artists, but it could sustain itself with the money we made from shows or from rentals or what have you. With that being closed, every way I made money except diversity was done. Like as a performer, I can't get booked. Right. As running an art space, we can't, I can't invite 50 people in right now. You know, yeah. we can't rent our space out to other people. So we started printing up t-shirts, mugs, tote bags for black land ownership. Um, we started, I'm selling my prints cause I'm also a photographer. I started selling more of my prints. I'm now in a much different modality of, I got product, let's sell it. We, right. we, have crystals like because we were doing a lot of music events some of the music folks were into energy healing and we we're doing yoga and meditation and dance and movement stuff some of them were into crystals so two or three years ago we started having small amounts of crystals for sale well once all this hit you can sell crystals online so we went to a gym show we got boxes of 
quartz, amethyst, selenite, apophyllite, yada, 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 yada. And I started learning more and, and reading and reading and reading. So I know what I'm talking about when I speak to people. Oh, wow. And we, 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 I'm, I'm not a salesperson. I've always turned kind of my nose at this idea of hustler, hustler, hustler. So I don't want to use that word, right. but I'm, I'm like, we got to get it. You do it. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. There's no play time right now. That's right. Well, I like that. <clears throat> Please tell everybody once again, how we can, how we can reach out to you because listen, everybody, you need to join Christopher Carr. This is a movement. This is a whole movement. Black land ownership and him as an artist. Get on on this movement. Yeah, for Black Land Ownership, it's just blacklandownership.com. For all the art and music stuff, it's Brooklyn Wildlife. We're the only ones out there. And and it is about the community. Like, like what we do does not work if we think individualistically. Right. The only way I've been able to run this art space with my partner the past couple of years is when the pandemic hit and we put up that fundraiser, people donated. People right. said, we appreciate what y'all been doing. That's we right. wouldn't pay. When, when we, we were doing shows, I had so many friends that were like, let me in for free. Let me, they want to pay the five or $10. But once they were like, oh, y'all might close, here's a hundred dollars. Here's a hundred fifty. Pay that rent. Stay right. open. That's right. You know? That's right. And artistically, I've learned so much. Like, like I grew up in DC. I lived in Atlanta. I went to Morehouse. I had a, and I've been doing hip hop since 16. I was far more into your more traditional proto-masculine presentation of black maleness. It's only through art. I started gaining an understanding of the queer experience in a way that's more in depth, the trans experience that's more in depth, the international and migrant experience. I had homies from Jamaica, I had homies from El Salvador, I, but I didn't understand until I got up here in the art scene where I got homies who can't go home because they don't have paper. They are stuck mm, yep. in America, can't, exactly. Go, exactly. can't go see their family because they're illegal. Right. And I, now I have an empathy, I have an understanding for that experience. And it's only been through this arts community it wasn't through my academics. It wasn't through the ivory tower. It wasn't through any of these other sitting in a cubicle office jobs I had prior. Um, and so please, if you out there and you make art and you have a message, you have a meaning, you have something you want to tell the world, hit me up. We are definitely pro artist, pro creative, anti-corporate. If you think messing with us is going to get you a record deal or a big check from some big company, probably not the people to holler, you know? That's right. That's right. Please, everybody, join this movement. Christopher Carr, I want to thank you for joining me on the podcast. Please follow him. Check him out. Make sure you know what he does. He's doing a lot. This is Marcos Luis. You can follow me at Marcos Luis on everything. Go to the dot com. Find all my social media links. Follow the show at One Mike Knight. One Mike Knight is spelled O-N-E-M-I-C-N-I-T-E. This podcast is now in season two. I want to thank everybody for joining this movement. Share the podcast. Make sure you subscribe. Click down below. We're also available on YouTube at One Mike Night. Thank you for joining me. We'll see you next time on the next episode of One Mike Night Podcast. Out. Peace.